Hello and welcome to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer, a series featuring conversations with experts to share recent market developments, key insights and strategic inputs from around the globe. Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Julius Bear podcast. This is Richard Tang, the China strategist and the head of research Hong Kong for Julius Bear. Now, today we have Hong Hao back to our podcast again. Hong Hao is currently the partner and chief economist of Grow, and he is joining our podcast regularly to discuss the Chinese market. Hi, Hao. Thank you very much for your time speaking with us today. Hi, Richard. It's great to be here. Thank you. Today is the 28th of April, and we are recording this episode right before the Labor Day holiday. So let's start our conversation with this. Now, we looked across the data sets of the various travel vendors, and so far, the booking trends have been encouraging. Now, an online travel agency was telling us that the domestic travel bookings for the Golden Week holidays this year had actually surpassed the 2019 levels. Now, also, over half of the Macau casino rooms were already booked by mid-April, and the prices were high. Clearly, we still have to wait for the post-holiday data to see the full picture, but I think the numbers that we've got so far do point to a very strong travel demand in China. Having said that, when it comes to an overall assessment of the China consumption recovery, we fail to come to a coherent conclusion simply because the different data sets are all pointing to different directions. As we said, if we only look at the travel data, you feel optimistic about the Chinese consumption and the same store sales growth in restaurants have also picked up quite a lot. It does seem that most service industries are doing well, probably with the exception of movie box sales slowing down a little bit in recent weeks. But in contrast, the goods consumption in China have looked much weaker. We've seen companies in sportswear, in milk, or even in e-commerce giving conservative guidance this reporting season, or even cutting the previous guidance to lower levels. And then price point is the other dimension of divergence. Now, high-end luxury goods, especially those European brands, have seen very, very strong recovery in China, but the mid-end products have actually fairly weak sales. So we are talking about an uneven recovery in the consumption in China here. Now, in any case, I think people are puzzled by the strong retail sales growth in China, which grew over 10% from previous year. So how... My question to you is, how do you interpret such a strong data print? And how would you assess the overall consumption recovery in China at this juncture? I'm hearing the travel booking is up 120% comparing with 2019. So that's uh, something to be joyful about. I think you were right. The consumption recovery has been rather uneven. So we're seeing the higher income top-end consumers recovering very strongly. And I think their appetite towards global luxury goods you know, hasn't abated at all. So I think that buying is propping up LVMH first quarter results and also making Arizona the richest guy in the world again. But I think the lower-end consumers are still struggling and also the middle class struggling as well. And I think their struggle can be seen through the income tax receipts in Shanghai, for example. Comparing to last year, for some reason, income tax receipts in the Shanghai municipal government is still down. 15% year. So that's quite surprising because after all, this year is supposed to be reopening, things are supposed to be getting normal, but we are actually earning less than a difficult year. So that's puzzling. I think for the lower end, the, uh, the bottom consumers, because their consumption is mostly staple consumption, so I don't think they have been affected too much. And we are seeing a year-on-year 
growth in their consumption is because this year there's no mobility restriction. So people can move freely across cities and across regions. And I think that helps tremendously how people consume this year. And also, if this is the first spring festival in three years, people were able to go back home to visit families. And that helps tremendously to boost consumption as well. So I think all in all, you're right, the consumption recovery has been very uneven. And also because of the income growth is a concern, it remains to be seen whether it's a sustainable consumption recovery or not. So it looks like when it comes to investing in the consumer sectors, we still need to be super selective and focus more on the bottom-up fundamentals. Now, if we move on to something that we definitely have to discuss today, which is the Chinese property market, because it's such a large part of the economy. Well, according to the 46 city statistics that we regularly follow, the new home sales in China troughed in February, rebounded in March, but softened again in April. Now, of course, if we look at different samples, we may have slightly different observations, but quite a few investors are fairly concerned right now uh, whether the housing recovery in China may be short-lived. So how do you think the property market can rebound further? I think it's still too early to draw any conclusions. Reason being, we've seen a very strong first quarter, especially in the secondary housing market. So for some reason, people just rushing out to buy houses. But then obviously, because there's still the risk of unfinished buildings, meaning developers run out of money and they use the uh, construction deposit for some other purpose and therefore they don't have enough cash to finish the buildings. And therefore, people opt to buy secondhand house because there's no risk. So we're seeing across the board very strong sales growth year on year across cities. But going into the first two weeks of April, things are slowing down again, which is puzzling once again, because last year, this time, we had a lockdown. So, you know, many Chinese citizens were locked down, you know, people's sentiment would get so affected that nobody was even thinking of buying anything, not even consumption, for example. So it is puzzling to see with such a lower base that we're not seeing a very strong sales growth in the property sector. So that's one. And I think secondly, if you look at the source of funding for property development, for some reason, you know, developers are still getting the funding from home sales, not from the bank. Banks are still quite reluctant to lend to property developers. If you are a stay-owned property developers, you may fare better. But I think if you're private-owned developers, you will be struggling big time. So that is telling us that Developers are still too diffident to be reinvesting into building new houses. So I would say that even though we have a very good first quarter in terms of sales, I think going into the second quarter, for some reason, things are slowing down once again. So it remains to be seen whether the strong recovery that we saw in the first quarter is sustainable. And also, when we talk about property sector recovery, it's just not about property sales. But more importantly, it's about the property investment growth. In the first quarter, for some reason, property investment growth, as I said just now, you know, maybe because of lack of funding, maybe because of lack of confidence, investment growth is actually slower than what we thought it would be for some reason. So it really remains to be seen. But once again, I would remind our listeners that in 2014, it takes more than three quarters for the sector to recover. And I think this year, we are facing an even more challenging situation and therefore the time to recovery may take even longer. I agree. I think it does take time for confidence to come back, right? for the home buyers to regain confidence to buy homes and also for the property developers to regain confidence to invest. So 
I think we need to be patient. But the other thing, which is a news headline that got investors very, very nervous in the recent days, is about the completion of the nationwide real estate registration system in China. China has been talking about it for a decade already. Finally, getting this done. The new system basically will have 1.5 billion of records, and they will be updated in real time. So. People asked us whether this means that the property tax rollout will be soon coming. We at Julius Baer do not think there is a necessary linkage between the registration system and also the property tax. After all, I think the government will have to consider the timing, especially when we are in a time of fragile sentiment. So, how was your view on this? When we will see the property tax rolling out to the entire country? Many people probably forgot that we had property tax in Shanghai for ten years. So, so each year we're collecting like ten billion RMB in terms of property tax in that city. While you know the total tax receipt for Shanghai is one point three trillion yuan. So it really shows you that somehow the property tax burden for the Shanghainese residents are quite low. It's manageable. Let's put it this way. And also the new registration office is taking care of all the immovable assets, which includes national forest, for example, rivers, land. And of course, properties. So I would say that this is a new sort of registration office focusing on tallying how much fixed assets that we have in the national balance sheet. So I think people tend to jump to conclusion. I think at this point in time, at the inception of a economic recovery, if we actually try to tax the economy, it won't help. So this is a time where you want to cut tax, you want to cut interest rate, you want to cut triple R, you want to give. The economy, all you can to help it to regrow. I think in the first quarter we did a really good job. I think the first quarter GDP growth is higher than expected, but it doesn't mean that we're out of the woods just yet. So just now we mentioned、uh, the property sector is somehow sales is slowing down again. So I think that the economy still needs all the help it needs, and I think for now it's time to cut tax rather than imposing a new tax burden on a country that is still trying to walk out of the shadow of the pandemic. Honestly speaking, the market sentiment over the past couple of weeks were not particularly great. I think two of the reasons are number one, the risk of policy turn domestically, and number two, the continuing China-U.S. tension. So, how I'm sure you've read the Bloomberg article a few days ago that suggests that the Chinese policymakers may begin to shift the policy focus away from the stimulus back to reform. Now, especially now with the better than expected Q1 GDP number, they said. The government leaders may reduce their worries on the economy, and that could lead to less support on the policy front. Now, this is what Bloomberg tells us. Now, meanwhile, what we can observe is that the PBOC already signaled that it will start dialing back some of those pandemic measures used to funnel the loans to the small businesses during the COVID times, and we can also see that the liquidity injection is no longer expanding. So, I think the near-term risk of policy exit is one of the top investor concerns right now, especially with the mainland Chinese investors. How how would you see this policy outlook in the next few months or in the next few quarters? I strongly disagree with the market assessment about direction of monetary policy and then also the economic stimulus. I think reform and stimulus is they are not mutually exclusive. So reform has been a general direction that has been ongoing for four decades now. So each year. There has been a meaningful reform going on, except for the pandemic years where we were sort of sidetracked by other issues. But each year, for the past forty years, we had very important reform, and 
the general direction won't change. And also, if you listen to the new political leaders' public speech, they really trying to emphasize the direction of reform and open that would continue to attract foreign investments to work with China. I think that part, I don't think there will be any argument. In terms of stimulus, it's a short-term economic management policy. So just now we discussed how China is still not out of the woods yet. At this point in time, it will be too soon to be talking about taking away the stimulus because we just released record amount of liquidity into the system. And now you're talking about trying to take it back at, at the time when you don't have inflation pressure at all. So why would you do that? And also the economy is still struggling a bit. And even though in the first quarter, GDP growth is 4.5%, it's better than expected. But at this point in time, the potential economic growth for China as an economy should be 5% or more. So 4.5% is still below the potential growth rate. And therefore, that is one of the reasons why you're not seeing inflationary pressure just yet. So I think in such an environment, it will be like too hasty to be taking away the stimulus. If you look at what's going on in the U.S., the Fed has been exiting for the past 15 years. And every time they talk about exiting, you see interest rate cut, expansion of the Fed's balance sheet. So I think the key really is that we have to see whether the economy still needs stimulus and also whether there's inflationary pressure because of the stimulus policies. And at this point in time, we're not seeing that. And therefore, it will be too soon, way too soon to talk about policy exits. All right. The last topic before we conclude this episode is the Biden's executive order on investment ban. Now, a few different versions have already reported by the media before, but most recently it is reported that the Biden administration is close to finalizing an executive order to ban the U.S. capital from investing in China tech firms that are involved in three areas, number one, semiconductors, number two, quantum computing, and also number three, artificial intelligence. Now, there are still no details announced yet, so it is very hard to assess the impact, to be frank. But clearly, the internet sector is vulnerable, given that these internet giants are all jumping onto this AI bandwagon. So the key, in my view, is whether they set any threshold to the exposure for any company to be included in this ban. Now, I have to admit that I do not have a very strong conviction, but I guess a rational decision for the U.S. itself is to put only mild restrictions, given that the U.S. economy is still struggling and it is still coping with the stress from the regional banks. Now, how I don't know whether you agree with this or not, whether you see this the same way as I do, but how would you think about this entire issue? And do we have any other things that we should keep an eye on? Yeah. It could be wishful thinking to think that the U.S. should do a mild version of sanction of the Chinese technology industry because, let's face it, the rivalry is on and it's intensifying. This is at least the third round of sanctions that the U.S. government is trying to impose on China. And also, it's going to be official during the upcoming G7 meetings. So we shouldn't have too much hope to have a milder, gentle version of the sanction. I actually think that it's going to be harsh, but it's actually better. So the market hates uncertainty. Let's think about this. The U.S.-China rivalry is on and it's heating up and it's intensifying. And then if we do a milder version now, then it means that there will be like much more sanctions down the road across the board. So you might as well do it in one go, do it in one hit. To give you an example, China Mobile and also China Telecom and many other Chinese state-owned companies, they were delisted from the U.S. stock market exchange two years ago. Everybody thought it was a disaster. You know, back then, 
the USSC basically just kicked them out. So they had no choice but to return to the domestic Asia market for relisting. So guess what happened two years later? Who is having the day of the market, which is these names, because these names that has been delisted from the US stock exchange because the uncertainty has been resolved. So basically the uncertainties of the shareholder structure, meaning the US investors who were holding these companies, they were forced to sell. So therefore, after two years, there's just no more sellers. And then also once they get back to the domestic market, then they get the support from the domestic investors as well. So that is an example to show that once we get rid of the uncertainty, the market actually would get used to it. Now, as you pointed out, Richard, the Chinese tech firms are jumping into the AI development. Many people sort of think that the Chinese tech firms only evolve up to the AI theme a couple of months ago, while OpenAI and many other USAI firms has been developing AI for the past seven years. So from here, many of the observers draw a conclusion that, oh, wow, China has been lagging substantially behind US in terms of AI development. But think about this. The thing is, the Chinese language and also the Chinese internet is a, somehow is a, a closest and it caters to a specific customer group, even though this customer group is like 1.4 billion people. So if you want to train AI, you need substantial amount of data. Especially if you want to train Chinese AI, you need Chinese character-based information, which mostly, I would say 90%, 95% of them is located in China. That is why I don't think China is lagging behind, but I think there would be like two AI systems in the future, one is in English and one is in Chinese. I mean, unfortunately for us, we have to deal with both systems. So I think the hurdle for the Chinese AI really is that you can't get the AI chips now because there's a ban for NVIDIA and other semiconductor firms to sell chips to China. But I heard that in Shenzhen, in cafes, the H100 chips is selling at 200,000 US dollars each. So there's smugglers doing this kind of business. The market is very smart. The market always come up with a way to bypass the official sanctions and all that stuff. So I'm actually quite optimistic about this. I'd rather see a, a really harsh, very hawkish sanction and get it alone with. So since now that the rivalry is on, we might as well set up all the rules clearly so that we can play the game according to the new rules. That's my logic. I'm not sure that whether I'm right, but I think right now, the concerns about these new sanctions really weighing on the market. And for the past couple of weeks, indeed, you're right, the tech shares have been struggling big time and people are waiting for this big announcement to come out to resolve this uncertainty. I think you raised a very interesting point in view of this bipolar world. Even the AI system may be bipolar. <laughs> I think that is a very interesting point. And I see your point. If we are heading to the same destination at the end, why don't we just get it faster and move on? Great. I think that's all we have for the time today. Thank you, Hal, for your sharing. Ladies and gentlemen, stay tuned for our next podcast. Speak soon and goodbye. Get ready for the day ahead. Moving Markets is a daily market news briefing from Julius Baer's leading experts. You'll hear all about the latest ups and downs across asset classes, the underlying drivers, and our thoughts on where markets are heading. Search for Moving Markets on your favorite podcast player. You have been listening to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. 
To learn more about Julius Baer, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at www.juliusbaer.com. We will be back with a brand new episode soon. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research. Please refer to www.juliusbear.com forward slash legal forward slash podcasts for further important legal information.